Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome again to the Right Take Podcast. I apologize for the delay since the last episode. We had some technical issues with this episode, which was actually recorded right after Halloween. And also, my wife had a baby last week and having a baby tends to impact your time. We have five kids now, and as the comedian Jim Gaffigan says, you know what it's like having five kids? Imagine that you're drowning, and someone hands you a baby. No, I'm joking. It's actually fine. It's all under control, because the older kids are a big help. But having a newborn does throw a wrench into your schedule. Anyway, I'm back on track now. Thank you for joining me at the intersection of politics and culture. I know you have many podcast choices out there. Too darn many, in fact. I'm convinced there are more podcasts now than there are actual listeners, so I'm honored that you chose to give the right take your time and attention. My aim is to bring you really fascinating guests, and today I can promise you will not be disappointed. I'll be in conversation with my friend Raymond Ibrahim, author of several important books, but most recently of one called Defenders of the West, The Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. Defenders is a sort of follow-up to Ibrahim's 2018 book, Sword and Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West. That book was about decisive battles in the clash of civilizations, while the newer one zeroes in on the profiles of eight decisive men in that ongoing conflict, set between the 11th and 15th centuries, from Spain's legendary hero El Cid and England's Richard Lionheart, to lesser-known but no less heroic figures, such as Francis Saint-Louis and Hungary's John Hunyadi. I wrote a review of it a couple of months ago for Front Page Mag and gave it two thumbs up, not just as a favor to a friend and a colleague at the David Horowitz Freedom Center, but because for fans of history, especially fans of military history, and fans of well-told, true-life tales of epic heroes in the Western tradition, it's a book you have to put at the top of your reading pile. But don't think that it's just a dry history lesson. It's an inspirational page-turner with contemporary resonance for our time. One of the reasons this is an important book is because historiography today, the narratives about the past, particularly our past, that of Western civilization, has been shaped almost exclusively for several decades now by the neo-Marxists who dominate our academic and cultural landscapes. Those writers and scholars and culture makers, like filmmakers, have approached history with a political agenda, determined to deconstruct and discard the glorious edifice of Western civilization. They view everything through the distorting lens of social justice ideology and multiculturalism. Multiculturalism, of course, is the worldview that all cultures are equally worthy of celebration and admiration, except Western civilization, and especially the U.S. as the ultimate representative of that culture. Western civilization is condemned by the multiculturalists as the fount of all evil and oppression and greed throughout history, and it's victimized all the other cultures, etc., etc. You know the drill. A prominent example of this anti-Western historical revisionism would be the widely criticized, but nonetheless very influential, 1619 Project by New York Times propagandist Nicole Hannah-Jones. If you're a regular listener, to the Right Take podcast, you may recall that in a previous episode, I addressed this with my guest Mary Graybar, an historian 
and the author of a couple of books debunking the left's historical hit pieces like the 1619 Project. The coordinated mission of activists like Nicole Hannah-Jones is to subvert the grand narrative of our cultural heritage in the West into an ugly tale of oppression, colonialist exploitation, and Eurocentric supremacy. Their aim is to brand all our flawed heroes as racists and hypocrites and to knock them off their pedestals, both figuratively and literally. This is one reason why the book Defenders of the West offers such a refreshing take. It unapologetically rejects that leftist worldview. So you can see how this would be so appreciated by those of us who have a deep respect and love for the Western tradition and who care deeply about preserving it for our children and how it would be equally galling or infuriating to the enemies of the West. The forewords to both books were written by renowned historian and conservative commentator Victor Davis Hanson, whose name is no doubt familiar to you. He actually served as Ibrahim's master's thesis advisor in the late 1990s. Hansen says of the men in Ibrahim's new book, quote, In what now may seem an archaic sensibility, they were fighting for a unique way of life, or often a restoration of it, against a rising challenge completely foreign to everything in their experience, from the aspirations voiced on the Sermon of the Mount to classical traditions of individual liberty, unquote. Ibrahim himself explains that the book is about eight men who, quote, driven by something greater than themselves, devoted much of their lives and went to great lengths to make a militant, if not desperate, stand against Islamic aggression, unquote. He argues that without them and many more defenders like them over the centuries, there would not have been a West to speak of today. And for the West to survive its current enemies, both foreign and domestic, we need defenders like that today in this era of what I think I can call, without fear of contradiction, civilizational decline. The West is in decline. The United States is in decline. This is no secret to anyone who is paying attention, especially our enemies. In every arena you can name, economically, socially, morally, civically, spiritually, I don't think I need to tell you that the needle is in the red. We're in the danger zone, and our enemies smell blood. In fact, my filmmaker friend Gloria Greenfield, who makes documentaries highlighting the threats that are facing us in the world, Western world today, she's just finished a new one with the very appropriate title, Civilization in the Danger Zone. I'm going to have her on this podcast, by the way, to discuss that film and her other work very soon. But that doesn't mean that there isn't cause for optimism, because there is. But reversing our civilizational decline is going to require fighters, defenders, heroes, driven by something greater than themselves, as Raymond Ibrahim put it. In fact, his new book is unabashedly dedicated to all the past, present, and future defenders of that which is good, right, and true. The good, the right, and the true? Gee, there are some ideals you don't hear spoken of very often in our postmodern time. So I see the historical heroes in Ibrahim's book as role models. We should aspire to their courage and selflessness, and it doesn't have to be on the same grand scale as a Richard Lionheart. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to saddle up a sword and shield, as fun as that might be. There are many ways to fight back, many ways to defend our way of life in our everyday lives and our local communities. One way is to hand down heroic tales like the ones in Ibrahim's book to our children, to the next generation, instead of instilling in them a self-loathing about our civilization and its values and achievements. That's part of the value of this book. 
And again, it's not just a dry history lesson. Victor Davis Hanson calls the book Engaging Storytelling of Fascinating People and Forgotten Events at Its Best. And as a reader with a special passion for medieval history and chivalric exploits, both historical and fictional, I can promise you that Raymond Ibrahim's two most recent books, Sword and Scimitar and Defenders of the West, are essential and compelling reading, and that you are going to find him a compelling guest as well. So, enough of me talking about it. Let's get to Raymond and let him speak for himself. Don't go away. My guest today on the Right Take podcast is an historian and a Shillman Fellow at the David Horowitz Freedom Center, as I am too, which makes us fellow fellows. Sorry, I'm, I'm easily amused. Uh, he's also a senior fellow at the Gatestone Institute, and as I mentioned in my opening remarks, he's the author of several books, including most recently, Sword and Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West, and the newest one, Defenders of the West, The Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. Raymond Ibrahim, thanks for joining us at The Right Take. Hello, Mark. Uh, very good to be with you. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on. Thanks for taking the time. Why don't we start off with you just kind of giving us a little bit of your, your background, how you uh, entered this field and uh, what, your, you know, what, what the academic background is and all that. Sure, Mark. Um, so it really all starts, you know, way back many decades when I was born, <laughs> uh, because, you know, my, my version of the take is it's not just a professional thing, but it's kind of a personal or, or private thing. You know, it's a part of my upbringing because my family comes from Egypt. Um, I was born here in the United States, but they immigrated here in the, I think, mid 60s. Um, and they're what's called Coptic, Coptic Christians, which is basically the indigenous my Christian minority of Egypt. Um, so growing up, obviously, I kind of had that kind of funny upbringing where I was, you know, half the time in, in America. And then at home, I was sort of like in a little Egypt. And uh, I grew up bilingual, speaking Arabic. And then later, I also formally studied Arabic, including classical Arabic and the various colloquial dialects. Um, but so, you know, my whole youth, I was obviously naturally interested in that part of the region. I had, you know, cousins and uncles and aunts who lived there. Um, I visited it, uh, not just Egypt, but the broader Middle East in general. So, you know, naturally just part of my world. Um, and then in college, I very much was interested in history and I gravitated naturally towards this sort of ancient Near East, uh, whatever, from ancient pharaohs and Mesopotamians to ancient Greece and Rome. And so I really focused in that area. And um, I was lucky to have for a professor, Victor Davis Hanson. Because uh, I, I went to Fresno State um, in my college years, so both my bachelor's and master's were in history, and uh, he was the chair of my uh, thesis committee. And another Shulman fellow, ironically, Bruce Thornton, was one of the readers uh, on my, my master's committee as well. So kind of like small world here. Uh, anyway, yeah, great guy. Uh, he's one of my favorite um, writers, as is Victor Davis Hanson, of course. But uh, I think Bruce Thornton is underrated. Yeah. I agree with you and um, great guy to know personally as well. And, you know, to, right. to have general conversations with. So I've known both those uh, men, you know, for about 25 years now. Remember we, you know, we used to have parties at Victor's uh, ranch and Selma and so forth. 
Uh, <laughs> Bruce just recently retired, I believe. Anyway, um, so I went to school there and, and it was very, a great time. Uh, studied history. And then, um, you know, when I was writing my master's thesis, which I probably started around 2000, uh, I was focused because I was working with Victor Davis Hanson. And this is, you know, his high time of military history. And I naturally enjoyed that as well. So I, you know, let my, I, I let my hand to writing my thesis on the first military conflict um, between Islam and Christendom in the guise of what we call the Byzantine Empire. And, you know, it was also because I was studying the languages, Arabic and Greek and so forth. So it made perfect sense. It was a perfect nexus. I wrote about the Battle of Yarmouk, uh, which is ironic. So I wrote that, um, you know, like uh, came out in 2001. So we're talking 21 years ago. And it's funny to see that I'm back writing about military history again of Islam and the West or Christianity. At any rate, uh, right when that thesis came out, it was 2001. That's when I got my master's. And that's when, of course, 9-11 happened. And um, so I decided to continue my studies. And I went to Georgetown University. I was accepted in one of the leading uh, Islamic departments, or rather Arabic. It was a contemporary center for Arabic studies. Um, I went there and I studied uh, um, early year. You know, I spent some time working towards a PhD. Also, I, I took a break and I went to Catholic University of America because I was in Washington, D.C. at the time. I ended up getting an internship at the Library of Congress at the uh, Near East section of the Middle Eastern and African Division. And that was a great that was a great thing for me because I just I'm a bibliophile <laughs> and I was in the largest library in the world, which is also a beautiful building, the Jefferson Building. And that became a full time job. And when that became a full time job, in many ways, it kind of you know changed my academic studies because I couldn't I was working 40 hours at a new job. You know, I was recently married, had my first child, buying a home. So I couldn't really st struggle, uh, juggle everything. And I ended up quitting college, not least because I was also finally learning about how academia is. <laughs> I, when, I, when I went to Georgetown, I had no idea about, you know, how politically charged these, uh, some of these programs were or how, you know, it's just uh, it's the default setting is to always be an apologist for Islam. So I definitely had some, uh, I clashed with some of those people, including like John Esposito, because he's from Georgetown. And um, I think, John, yeah, and John Vall as well. So yeah, that's that's my early. So I basically quit um, academia. And, and then at the same time, I also found the writings of Al-Qaeda in Arabic at the Library of Congress. So this is a lot all going on at once, the full-time job. And I got a, got a full, and I got a book deal with Doubleday to translate, you know, Al-Qaeda. So I couldn't, I couldn't go to school and I ended up dropping out. And, um, and that was a great decision, by the way. Um, so I wrote the book, <laughs> Al-Qaeda Reader, that came out. And I was still at the Library of Congress. And right around then, it came out in 2007, even though I started working on it in 2004. Uh, but at that point, that's when I started, um, you know, meeting people in this field, uh, such as the David Horowitz Freedom Center people. Uh, I think one of my earliest talks ever was in 2006, where I spoke for the Freedom Center. Um, and I also met with Daniel Pipes, Middle East Forum. I ended up getting a job as an associate director at the Middle East Forum, and I basically just quit the Library of Congress after, I don't know, six, seven years I was there. And it was like I said, it was a great job. I really miss you know having access to all those books. Um, but I still have colleagues there who can help out with Xeroxing things and whatnot. Anyway, um, I, I worked as a 
associate director of Middle East Forum for a, about a couple of years. Then I was offered various fellowships, including the Shulman Fellowship at the Horowitz Center. And I also, you know, from being an administrator, I became a fellow at the Middle East Forum. And as you noted, the Gatestone Institute. And really, so since about 2010, I've just, my full-time job and activities have been directed towards writing articles, mostly on Islam, but especially certain niches like uh, the persecution of Christians. And in recent years, I've sort of returned to my original interest, which is history, um, especially with the two books that I've written, Sword and Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West, which came out in 2018, and the new one, which just came out a couple of months ago, Defenders of the West, the Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. And, and that your facility with languages, especially classical Arabic, that has really become a, a major strength uh, for you as far as being an historian, right? Because uh, you work mostly, I mean, you can tell from reading your books that you, you're working mostly from the original sources, which is just uh, fascinating, I think. Yeah, it definitely opens a whole world to me. I mean, it's if you're going to fo be focused at a, I mean, that's one part of academia that makes sense. You need to know the languages if you're going to really focus and delve into the world or else you're not just limited, you know, dramatically as to what you can access, but you also have to go by that translation. And when you talk about Islam, you know, when you just look at the Quran, for example, and you can just, you don't even have to know Arabic, just look at the various English translations and you're going to be wondering what's going on here because there's so wildly translated um and there's a reason for that obviously um it's intentional i think but also the arabic is na is naturally poetic and fuzzy and ambiguous and whatnot but um yeah i would say knowing knowing that language has just really opened a whole different world and i especially enjoy listening to, to arabic um you know muslim sermons and d debates and whatnot yeah you, def you definitely get a a, a, a more accurate picture of what's going on in that yeah. area. Interesting, because for one thing, uh, you know, our, our fundamentalist enemies uh, tend to present one message. Uh, they often present one message in their original language to, uh, you know, the fellow Arabic listeners and another message in English for, uh, uh, you know, for, for Western consumption. That was well. That was the whole point of my of my getting into this field. Actually, was the whole translation thing with the Al Qaeda reader, because up until the Al Qaeda reader, before I translated these writings, um, you had obviously communiques from Osama bin Laden and Ayman Zawahiri, which were being translated and relayed through the media, CNN, Fox News, whatever. Um, and in those things, which were made, as you say, for Western consumption. It was all about where we attacked you because you are making our lives miserable by supporting Israel, by whatever. I mean, you know, the list went on forever because of colonialism, because you blaspheme and hurts our feelings, you know, whatever. Even the Kyoto Protocol, which dealt with the environment, Osama bin Laden cited as a grievance for Muslims. But then those writings that, yeah, the writings that I came across, which were written in Arabic, were the complete opposite. It basically, you know, they spelled out and said it doesn't even matter if these Western people were good to us. We have to hate them. We have to wage war against them because that's what our religion commands. And, um, you know, Eamon Zawahri wrote 60-page treatise on what I translate as loyalty and enmity. In Arabic, it's called al-wala' wal-bara', which basically means you have to love and work with fellow Muslims, and you have to hate 
non-Muslims, even if they're good towards you. And the problem, of course, is this doctrine is fundamentally grounded in the Quran. There's many verses that, that call for that. But at any rate, as you say, that was, I think that was one of the most important, you know, that was the catapult to get me into this whole world anyway, from being a librarian and an academic um, to being someone who's trying to convey the thoughts and words. Well, your, your two most recent books are about uh, the clash of civilizations in the Middle Ages, uh, but that clash of civilizations is still ongoing, of course. I mean, I, you know, we're now more than 20 years past the 9-11 attacks, um, and there's a whole, I, I think that's starting to gradually fade in people's consciousness um, and then we have a whole generation of people who have been born since those attacks who are probably largely unaware of what's going on. But that clash of civilizations is still ongoing, isn't it? Yeah, and that was the whole point. I, you know, I was trying to show that there, there's some continuity. There's a method to this you know, Muslim madness, as it's seen. It's not some new aberration because that's how it's presented, of course. It's presented in a vacuum, that Islamic terrorism or whatever you want to call it, Muslim radicalism. Uh, Muslim anger, whatever. It's not something new that just happened because of this or that grievance. I mean, that's the mainstream narrative still until this day, um, that it's actually something that is religious and that's been going on since the beginning of Islam, literally from the time of Muhammad. He was the first one who actually began hostilities with uh, the the powers that surrounded him in, in, in the case of the West, you know, the Byzantine Empire, Empire where he sent a, a missive, a letter to the Emperor Heracles, basically telling him convert or else. Um, and, and obviously the Christians didn't. And that just opened a, you know, a can of worms of jihad that went on century after century after century. And that's the topic of my um, you know, 2018 book, Sorted Scimitar, is just to show you that it's been nothing but war and violence and hostility from Islam vis-a-vis -vis the West from the very beginning, 7th century, all the way until... Um, you know, the modern era. And the reason there, it's always it's interesting to me, if you ever talk to a historian or basically the apologist types when it comes to Islam, they almost any and any book, any documentary, everything begins with the colonial era. OK, as if there was nothing before that. And the reason for that is in the is the colonial era in the 1800s, let's say, and onwards, um, Islam was remarkably weak. Uh, against the West, and the West was remarkably strong, okay? So it features Westerners entering Islamic lands and colonizing them and so forth, and uh, you know, what they don't tell you is the 12 centuries before that, when it wasn't like that, when actually Islam was strong and Europe was on the, you know, defense, and all it was was, you know, Muslims invading and conquering Christian land, and people forget North Africa, all of it, from Morocco to Egypt. Middle East, you know, Syria, greater Syria, modern day Israel, um, Turkey, all these were the heart of the Christian world in the seventh century when Islam erupted. And today we just casually think of them as just Muslim territory, which of course it is, but it was taken through violent conquest. Um, and if you look at a map, that means Islam literally conquered three quarters of what was the original Christian world um, through violence and force. Again, people forget about Spain, centuries conquered, and you have almost about 800 years of reconquista until it's finally, you know, Islam is neutralized as a political power in 1492 and so forth. And then after that, it starts again in the East with the Ottomans, um, who again, and it's important to underscore and emphasize while, while I'm discussing this history, that 
it's one thing to say that Muslims and Christians fought. Okay, Ottomans fought against the Habsburgs or whatever. Uh, Moors fought against, you know, Castile. Uh, this is how people, the historians talk, and there's nothing wrong with it intrinsically. But what it does is it distances the motive and the religion. Because when you dig into the sources, you find out that the Muslims, century after century, whether they, they were Arabs or Moors or Turks or Tatars, basically Islamic Muslims, they all spoke like the Islamic State. They all said that we hate you to, you know, whatever Christian they were, just or, or non-Christian, Jew or Hindu, whatever. But I'm mostly talking about the West, that, um, you know, we hate you because you're an infidel. You have three choices, convert, you know, and, or become a second-class citizen, essentially pay tribute and live basically like a slave in many, in many instances, for example, or fight to the death. Um, they actually said that in all the sources, and yet that's been sort of expunged in secondary histories. And you just think to yourself, okay, you know, clashing empires, nothing surprising. There's no ideological component. But there really was. There was the same ISIS mentality, same ideological component. And, and you know, I left off with the Ottomans and they just swallowed up the Balkans. Mass terror. The word Slav comes from slave because basically to be a Slav in those days was to be a slave. You know, the sources talk about anything from 10 to 15 million Europeans being enslaved. We all know, of course, of the transatlantic slave. We don't uh, slave trade. We don't know, of course, about Europeans being enslaved. Muslims going all the way up to Iceland, you know, to to bring slaves because there was a premium on white slaves, for example. Um, so you know, and this goes on till 1683 with the siege of Vienna, and now you, and which features the largest Muslim army, something like 200,000 jihadists um, encircling Vienna and Austria. You know, and so forth. So look at that from 637 or 636, the first battle. <laughs> I talk about the Battle of Yarmouk, which I studied in college and wrote my thesis about. And you fast forward to 1683, that's a millennium, and it's all jihadist conquest. And then even the United States, it's very, its first war as a nation, which begins a little before 1800, after its independence from Britain, is with Muslims. Again, acting on the same jihadist imperative. Um, Barbary, basically, North Africa, which were pirates, and they were attacking and enslaving American vessels um, and killing them and wanting jizya, tribute. And when Thomas Jefferson and Adams met with the ambassador, he, he, and they said, why are you attacking us? We, we, everyone's our friend. We're happy to work with you, trade with you, whatever. Um, he basically said, well, it's, it's our religion and our prophet and our holy book command us to kill you, enslave you, etc., etc. So, I think the important point from all this is to understand that what, whatever hostilities there are between Muslims and non-Muslims, it is not a byproduct of some new circumstance, some new grievance. This is the religion. Uh, well, we just... I'd like to zero in on one of the subjects of your, your most recent book, Defenders of the West. We just passed Halloween. Um, and so I think it's appropriate that we talk about an article that you wrote recently for the stream.org called, which I think is the, the great title, Count Dracula, Undead Bloodsucker or Anti-Jihad Hero. And of course, we're talking about uh, Vlad the Impaler, the historical figure on whom uh, the fictional monster Dracula is based. I think I suspect a lot of our conservative listeners 
know something about this historical connection. They know a little bit about Vlad the Impaler, but uh, tell us a little bit about the, <clears throat> excuse me, the historically uh, correct or the, uh, the, the actual historical background and truth about Vlad. Sure. Sure, Mark. So, yeah, as you say, it's very apropos for, you know, the Halloween season that just passed. Um, so Count Dracula, of course, we know him, I think it's through the, uh, it's a novel in 1897 by Bram Stoker, which is an undead bloodsucker vampire from Romania. And yeah, it follows his uh, exploits, essentially. Now, as as a lot of people, novelists do, they try to find some historical setting or names to give to give some realism to their story. So he, he found a, a name, Vlad Vlad the Third Dracula. Dracula actually is his is his is his, his he's, it's his epithet, and what it means is son of the dragon, because his father Vlad the Second Dracul was in the order of the dragon, which was a um, Christian Hungarian order designed to protect Christendom from Islam. Um, at any rate, so Vlad he found him and basically. He looked at some of the writings about him from his era. So we do have early writings that deal with Vlad III, who we're talking about, Count Dracula. And um, they definitely don't portray him as a good guy. You know, he's, he's a sadist. He tortures. He impales. Till, the, till today, he's really known as drag, um, uh, as, uh, as Vlad the Impaler in translation. Sepish in Romanian. And of course, he's, he's of Romanian stock or Wallachia at the time. And... Um, uh, so he was a sadist who impaled people. We know that. And then, but the descriptions are really lurid and extreme, and the stuff that he supposedly did. I mean, just very diabolical. Okay, evil, evil guy. Now, and he took that and turned it into a, a, a fictitious bloodsucker and so forth. Now, the truth about it is, if you really dig into it, um, you know, those are early references that that depict him that way. But most historians will tell you that that's because you know the Gutenberg press had just come out. And, you know, he had he had fallen afoul of the king of Hungary and, you know, the Pope wanted to know why the king of Hungary wasn't helping in Vlad's crusade against the Turks because they gave him money. At any rate, long story short, they demonized him and actually put him in jail at that point and said he was a maniac and, and that he was doing all that stuff. Now, the historical, more more accurate account that, again, most modern historians, I think, would agree with. So the main point to keep in mind is that, yes, he did engage in terror tactics and he did impale. But one, he learned those from his Ottoman captors who you know, kept him in jail. And two, he was always vastly outnumbered. He, he could never really wage a proper conventional war because he was always something like one to 10 or one to 20 against the Ottomans. And his men were you know, very poorly equipped. So he had to resort to sort of these terror tactics you know, ambush, guerrilla warfare, and it actually worked. Um, he, he actually repelled the Ottomans and he terrified them, including Sultan Mahmed II, who conquered Constantinople a decade earlier. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, most people know Dr of Dracula through um, legends and the movies, but there is a movie uh, from 2014, although it's, I think Netflix recently acquired it because it popped up there and I watched it again recently. It's called Dracula Untold which I, I think, as far as I know, seems to be the most historically correct Dracula movie. It's, it, it tries to give some actual historical fact to um, the, you know, the, the more horror flick element. What do you think about that movie in terms of, of its attempt to depict Vlad 
historically truly. I remember thinking the same thing that you said. I did watch it some years back, so I don't fully remember, but I do recall thinking, you know, wow, this is actually somewhat accurate. Uh, they do portray him basically as an embattled, you know, Wallachian warlord who's being attacked by the, the, the Ottomans and the Hungarians aren't helping him often. And he just, uh, and he himself, the thing is, he himself suffered so much and was, was tortured and kept in jail by both Christians and Muslims. He actually spent more time in jail than on the throne. Um, so it really, it kind of gives you a, an insight on why he was possibly sadistic. Because that's what he grew up with. That's what he understood. Um, but, but yeah, the movie, I think, of all the movies out there would be the most closest to the most accurate, even though I, I think they also underplay the Islamic element as usual. Um, but, yeah, interest, again, inter but what I found interesting about him is this whole business about, you know, fake, fake news, Dracula. And, you know, it, 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 it's, it's kind of not unlike what happens today. Um, so to me, this is an example of not fake news, but fake history. And there's a lot of that. And it really excels on basically it, it, with what it does to religion. So what it does in this case is it takes Islam out of the equation. Okay, Islam didn't do anything bad. It didn't have a negative impact on Dracula or whatever. Um, and then it also takes out the Christian element. So Vlad was actually a very staunch Christian of the Orthodox variety, Eastern Orthodox. And, you know, a few people know that we all think of him as demonic. And in his letters and correspondences, he always portrayed his um, defense of his land against the Turks in, in very, you know, Christian terms, that he was defending Christendom. He was trying to help Christendom against Islam and Jihad and, and so forth. You know, he always would hang out in monasteries. He actually supported Mount Athos and so forth. So, again, and so most, so again, Hollywood, while while deleting the Islamic element, they also delete the Christian element or or try to show it as being behind his cruelty. So you, we're all familiar with the you know medieval Hollywood depictions uh, where you know the, the worst guy, the most hypocritical guy, the most evil sadist is the Christian guy holding the cross, right? So yeah, so I think so those elements are sort of alive and well in in you know Hollywood depictions of Dracula. And uh, like I said, it's fake history, you know, the counterpart of fake news. There's a lot more about Vlad in uh, your new book, Defenders of the West. Let's talk about some of the other historical characters in it, um, some of whom are, are very well known. Of course, Richard the Lionheart, for example, um, Vlad, whom we talked about, El Cid from Spain. There are a few that are lesser known popularly, like uh, uh, the Albanian Skanderbeg, uh, who you describe, or his his nickname is the Albanian Braveheart, which is a pretty fascinating chapter. Is there a favorite character that you have in here? A favorite chapter? Uh, you know, is is there one of yesterday's heroes in here that uh, you kind of have a secret or not secret, but a personal preference for? <laughs> you know, to be honest with you, I I don't. I you know I, I like them all, and that's why I picked these eight guys. And I thought it was a good um you know a good spread because it's eight chapters. Two of them are Spaniards dealing with the Reconquista, and three of them are Crusaders de dealing with the, you know, liberation of the Holy Land, and um, uh, three are from the Balkans. Uh, Vlad being one of them. I think I've I've had a lot of people read it and comments, and I find it interesting that there isn't one particular character that everyone likes, which is good. 
I think each each story has different elements that resonate differently with different readers, um, which is I think a good thing. Um, I think probably the the one who is the most interesting as a story, and probably the one who's also the least known is Skanderbeg, who you referenced, uh, the Albanian Braveheart, because this story is very remar- remarkable. And without giving too many spoilers, you know, basically. He's enslaved, just like Vlad. He's a little before Vlad. In fact, they're contempor- they're, they were contemporaries. But he's older. But he was enslaved and became a Janissary, which is a, um, an Islamic soldier, uh, um, slave soldier, where they would take basically the strongest Christians, the smartest, whatever, the ones that showed you know, great skills, and force them into Islam as children, okay, as, as young as nine, sometimes younger, and train them basically like Spartans in the Goge, they would just train them to become brutal warriors. Um, and that's what he was. So he, he and his brothers were taken, I think four of his brothers, and he was the youngest. And the four died uh, from Ottoman treatment. But not only did he survive, he became a, a great captain and a general. And the, and the sultan loved him because he was a great warrior. And he had 5,000 men under him. But it's funny because once, you know, once the chance came to break free, he did. And he is absconded from the Ottoman army. And reclaimed and went back to Albania and reclaimed his Christian identity. He recanted Islam and Muhammad, and as you can imagine, that just caused jihad after jihad to be um, sent towards little Albania. Um, and in <laughs> long story short, he actually persevered for a quarter of a century, and in every engagement, he beat the Ottomans. Um, and it's just amazing. And that's why I say that he's he's known as the Albanian Braveheart. It's very similar story to William Wallace in Scotland and whatnot, where he just, you know, wages guerrilla warfare against a much stronger um, army and continuously defies them um, until the very end, of course. And that's, uh, you know, readers can look into that. I don't want to ruin it, but a very exciting story. All these stories, but especially this one, you know, you wonder to yourself, Hollywood could make any, you know, um, awesome movie just on one of these chapters like Skanderbeg and they just don't touch him, you know, with a with a nine foot pole. And I think it's for the reasons I mentioned earlier. One, because it depicts Islam negatively, and two, because it sort of, you know, is very pro Christian. You know, Skanderbeg and all these men again. They they always pre- presented their war and resistance against Islam as in the name of Christianity. Um, so it's like a double no no. I think for Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I uh, I too am kind of frustrated that Hollywood doesn't latch onto these uh, stories, but at the same time, I'm kind of grateful that they don't because I know <laughs> I know what Hollywood's going to do with them. You know, they're, they'll ruin these stories like they ruined the, the Rings of Power yeah, oh, yeah, or Kingdom yeah. of Heaven. Remember that Crusades film? Right, oh, right. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so yeah, I, yeah. I guess it's uh, you know it's a, a blessing in a way. It's probably a good yeah. thing. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but they are great stories, and I, I'm a big fan. One of the reasons I love these especially your two most recent books is I'm a big fan of military history too, especially the middle ages that the medieval era is really kind of my jam as young people used to say, probably a couple of generations ago. Um, I, I love this stuff, but I confess that I knew next to nothing about Skanderbeg, for example. So uh, there's, there's a lot for even someone like me who's pretty familiar with this material. There was a lot in here that in your books that I was unaware of. And I, found it just really fascinating and, and well-told also. Great storytelling. Um, you write in the book, I wanted to bring out one quote in particular. You write, quote, that 
every one of them, meaning every one of the characters in, in, that you've written about, was the living embodiment of what is today condemned as toxic masculinity and the patriarchy. Worse, not only were they all white, male, and Christian, but far from being ashamed or apologetic over these now troubling attributes, two of these identity markers, their masculinity and religious faith, are precisely what animated them to act, unquote. Let's talk about those two markers, their masculinity and their faith. As you mentioned, you know, masculinity today is, is considered toxic and obsolete. Uh, people are, of faith are also in decline in the West. What are the implications and the consequences of those qualities lacking in Western civilization today? Well, I think we're seeing it every day, Mark, especially in the West. Um, you know, as one example, uh, you know, Islam tried to invade, let's say, Europe proper time and time again, as these books show. And these men that I talk about and others, of course, resisted through arms, through, you know, they had to have, they definitely had to have a masculine spirit because they threw themselves in war, like I said, often in very outnumbered situations, uh, desperate situations, but they did it because they had something, they had something to fight for, you know, their, their life, their civilization, their faith, their families, their culture. Um, and, uh, you know, today you look at, let's say Europe, it's in some places, it's literally overrun by Muslims. And these aren't Muslims who are grateful. I mean, they come there and um, in a lot of areas, they have these enclaves and, uh, you know, the cops are afraid to enter because they might get killed. And it's, it's almost, it's just a repeat of what happened before, except now Western forces, far from doing anything, they're going out of their way to facilitate this sort of thing. And it's precisely because, um, you know, these two markers, uh, their faith and their masculinity, which are important. The one masculinity, of course, allows the man to be assertive, you know, protective of his own. And the faith gives them something to fight for, you know, some some actual thing to preserve. But I think today there's nothing to fight for because everyone's a materialist and it's all about as long as you're enjoying your hedonistic lifestyle, who cares what anyone's doing? And of course, as we've seen, the masculinity, it's one of the worst things. It's being, you know, it's, it's it, the way to go is to be emasculated. And if you're not, then you're, there's something wrong with you, obviously. Um, and, and then obviously that attack is by design. It's unfortunate more men don't understand that it's not because being masculine is not cool. It's because the powers that be that want to control you know that the first thing they ever have to do is castrate men. <laughs> I mean, that's the easiest thing you can do to beat a to beat a to beat an enemy. You just get rid of the men, um, and I, yeah, and that's what we're seeing. You know, this idea of trying to present women as warriors, and you know, every everywhere you look, women are strong and dominant, and men are just weak and and silly. I think that's all by design, um, precisely to emasculate men. Because with emasculated men, you can do anything you want. There's no resistance. And I think that's what we're seeing every, everywhere in yes. the West. An emasculated civilization that's populated by people who are, are basically taught to hate their own cultural heritage and who have no sense of something greater than themselves to fight and die for. Uh, that, that's kind of a bleak description, I'm afraid, of today's Western civilization. Does that, you know, are, are, you, are you optimistic or pessimistic uh, in light of all that about the, the clash of civilizations and the future of the West. I'm pessimistic in the sense that I think it's going to get, it has to get worse before it gets better because it's already gotten so bad. And um, 
I mean, when you see, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one example. And I've had a lot of people tell me this, you, you know, say what you want about Islamists and radical Muslims. But when you put LGBT stuff in front of their kids and trans, you saw what they did in Dearborn. I mean, they really got angry. They got vocal. And a lot of people told me, you know, like, why, why aren't Christians or conservatives doing that? Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to see that, too, because it's like enough. It, 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 too many Western men, especially, have been taught that they just have to be passive. If you're not passive, if you take a stand for anything, then you're kind of a weirdo and you're not cool and you're not hip. And uh, it's, it's, you know, that's just how everyone is, is, is taught. And then they just, you know, run shot over everyone with insanity and all these crazy leftists and sexually perverse things that they're doing. And you need to take it and be quiet or else, you know, you're full of toxic masculinity. Um, that seems to be the idea. And, and I, again, I'm pessimistic because especially when you look at Europe um, and, and, I, and especially Western Europe, Eastern Europe, I think, is not so bad. But Western Europe, I, just, I don't even think they understand what it means to be a man. I think they, everyone understands what a male and female is, even though that is under contention, too. But ma- men and women, you know, the, the meaning, the connotation behind those more abstract terms, I think, are very much lacking. Yeah, I don't know. You and I aren't biologists, Raymond, so I don't think we're allowed to, uh, to define what masculine and feminine are. Um, but you're, you're right about all that. And I think it's been very eye-opening to see Muslims t- sort of take the lead um, against the, the, some of this LGBT uh, agenda in Dearborn, for example. And I, I think you're right. There's a lesson there for the Christian community and Christian families that Christian men need to stand up and, uh, and be as forceful in their d- defense of their own beliefs and of our cultural heritage. Um, Speaking of standing up, I, I wanted to mention that you um, you actually dedicate the book, Defenders of the West, to all the past, present, and future defenders of that which is good, right, and true. Amen to that. But uh, isn't standing up for the good, the right, and the true kind of a uh, an obsolete statement in our postmodern, post-Christian era? <laughs> it is, and that's precisely why I wrote it. <laughs> Um, because that's I, I know that's not what how people talk and uh, but I think that's what how what we, I mean the whole point of dedicating it to people who stand for what is good right and true is to acknowledge that there is good there is as opposed to bad there is right as opposed to wrong and there is things that are true as opposed to things that are false and I think all those those three things are under war right now especially under the umbrella term of relativism. Um, because you know this, you know, the idea that it's all you know your your take and it's existentialism and whatnot, everything's subjective. I think that's a great poison, and that's one of the chief reasons that men and women are not able to take a stand for anything. Because who who are you to define what's good, right, and true? <laughs> I mean, that seems to be the take. But in including it, I just wanted to emphasize that there is those things or at least certainly i believe in it but i know there's a lot of other people too yeah i think there's uh i i I think a groundswell is developing i'm uh like you i'm largely pessimistic uh or maybe i'm just realistic i'm not sure i know it's going to be an uphill battle i think you're absolutely right when you say it's, it's going to get worse before it gets better because i think that's what it's going to take for a lot of uh defenders the future defenders of the west to wake up and and get their act together um, defenders of the West, the Christian heroes who stood against Islam. It, it, it's a gripping, exciting read. 
but maybe more importantly, it's inspirational at a time when I think our civilization needs real heroes and defenders. So thanks for writing that book. Uh, please keep up the great work and I'm looking forward to the, to the next one from you. What, what is next on the agenda for you? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm evaluating different uh, topics. It's probably going to deal again with Islam and history because I think that's a, uh, I think that's a very fertile field that hasn't been adequately treated, at least not uh, from people from our side. It's it's being dominated mostly by leftist academics, and um, yeah, the whole point is I'm trying to put these correctives out there because if you don't if you get if you don't get history right, then you can't. It's you know if the first premise is flawed, your conclusion will always be flawed. So you got to get the very first early things right, and then be able to build on top of those in order to understand where we are and how we got here. Right. Flawed or or we could even say intentionally. Exactly. <laughs> intentionally manipulated or uh, revised historical revisionism at its, at its worst. Yeah. Thanks for these correctives. That's a great way to put it, that your books, I think, are, are, are historical correctives against the, the narrative that just absolutely dominates our academic um, arena and the cultural setting as well. Um, so uh, I, I think you're what the work you're doing is just incredibly important and inspirational, as I said. So once again, Raymond Ibrahim, thanks for coming on the Right Take podcast. Hope to have you back soon. Thanks very much, Mark. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.